I'm Heather. And this is Jay. And this is the Trauma Tally. Jay, what's a Trauma Tally? A Trauma Tally is when you have a traumatic event in your life and you yourself or someone else says something like, that's not so bad or so-and-so had it much worse. These are Trauma Tallies and we do not encourage Trauma Tallies here on our podcast. We want you to face whatever your trauma was and begin to heal from that. We support healthy ways of dealing with and healing from trauma, not downplaying your trauma, and consequently continuing to suffer from the effects. Exactly. We want you to use the tools in your toolbox to get the help that you need for whatever trauma you're going through. Uh, Know that you can live life, not just be a body in life. Yes, absolutely. And that's a trauma tally. All right, Jay. So happy Hanukkah. Actually, Hanukkah's over now, isn't it? Yes. So it's just Merry Christmas now. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Merry Christmas. And my gift to you is going to be D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper. D like David, B like boy, Cooper. All right. All right. All right. So you're going to love my source. My main source today is the FBI.gov. Mm-hmm. That's how big this mystery is. And then a Daily Mail article by Germania Rodriguez Poleo. And of course, Wikipedia, because why not? Throw it in there. Just why not? You know me. I always always go back through Wikipedia. So it was a cool, wet, windy afternoon in 1971. A man approached the ticket counter for Northwest Orient, Orient Airlines. Northwest Orient Airlines. So the man was between 5'9", five, 5'10", five, with an olive complexion, wearing a dark brown or black suit on his thin athletic frame and brown loafers on his feet. You need to remember what he's wearing, okay? He paid in cash for a one-way ticket from Portland, Oregon to Seattle-Tacoma or SeaTac Airport in Washington. He boarded the plane wearing his black raincoat over the suit with a white shirt underneath and a black tie clip-on tie secured with a gold t- ca- um, words secured with a gold tie pin bearing a mother of pearl setting. Clip-on is awesome. I'm just clip-on kidding. is awesome. <laughs> well, and the funny thing about this too is they actually later verified that the only place that sold this tie was J.C. Penney's. There you go. Okay, so. He was carrying a briefcase and a brown paper sack. He walked to the back row to see 18E and settled in. He ordered a bourbon and soda, but somehow the drink quickly spilled and he refused another. Okay. Hmm. They could smoke on planes back then because this was the 70s. I remember smoking in hospitals. (laughs) And he would smoke the entire time he was on this plane. Mm Mm-hmm. So a stewardess sat in what's called a jump seat near him and would later describe him as refined in appearance. Okay. Really? Yep. As she sat there, the man who identified himself as Dan Cooper passed her a note, thinking he was, you know, handing her his phone number Mm -hmm. as an attempt to pick her up. The attendant quickly dropped the little paper in her purse. And now I got to be able to turn the page. Okay, there we go. I wonder how many times that happens to stewardess people. Probably like multiple times a day because <laughs> they do I'm so thinking. many, especially like going from like that short of a flight from Portland to Seattle. I mean, that's yeah. not that long a flight. So the man, Dan Cooper, with a twinkle in his eye, leaned close to her and whispered, Miss, you better look at that note. I've got a bomb. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a bomb. I've got a bomb. Whoa. Is it in the brown bag or the suitcase? (laughs) So at 3 p.m., the stewardess removes the note from her purse, reading the words, Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase and you want to sit by me. (laughs) That's literally creepy. He just literally (laughs) handed her, you know, a piece of note. And then she was just like, oh, it's his phone number. He's like, no, you need to look at that. (laughs) Wait a minute. This did not work out the way I thought it would. Wasn't thinking she was gonna be all like, oh, this happens a hundred times a day. Yeah, exactly. Her she, purse she probably, probably full was, of it. Probably got all kinds of notes that she probably uses them to put her gum in. I mean, you know, back in the day, you would take something and just put your gum in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she moved to the seat beside Cooper and quietly asked to see the bomb. <laughs> Can I see it? <laughs> Show it to me. 
<laughs> sorry. You're funny. I'm sorry. No, it's great. <laughs> Show me the bomb. <laughs> oh, really? I'm going to take you the bomb. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So Co- Cooper briefly opens his briefcase, and this is what she describes seeing. Two rows with four in each row of red cylinders she believed to be dynamite, mm. several wires from these, and a large cylindrical battery. Now, can you think of anything more like stereotypical <laughs> Hollywood? This is a bomb. Like, like Bugs Bunny cartoons. Exactly. That's what I thought of, too. I thought about the old Acme cartoons with the bombs. And they always like, tick. They the go four sticks, but, you know, exactly. So he just kind of flat, you know, showed it to her real quick and then closed the case. And so then he tells her to write down what he says and to deliver it to the pilot. Still, though, it would be scary. I'm just going to say. Oh, yeah. So she diligently writes down his words and takes it to the cockpit. And the pilot reads the words and tells her to stay with him to take notes. I love how he's just like, (laughs) okay, you stay. Mind you, okay. Mind you, there are in these airplanes, the two stewardess and then four pilots. But she needs to stay and take notes for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, of course, they didn't have like automated, automatic, you know, self, whatever, cruise control, whatever they call it. <laughs> Gravy. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about in the airplanes, whatever they call it. I can't think of what it's called right now. <laughs> and so, like, they're, you know, they're all like, you know, doing their thing. But anyway. They all have to hold on to the wheel. They all have to hold the wheel. <laughs> okay. Um, so he tells, but so he tells her she has to, she has to stay in there and take notes. Okay. Mm-hmm. He then radios n- Northwest Orient, held Northwest Orient headquarters in Minnesota saying he requests $200,000 in a knapsack by 5 PM. He wants two front parachutes, two back parachutes. He wants the money in negotiable American currency. So Cooper requested that it all be in $20 bills. And by requesting two sets of parachutes, he implied he would be taking a hostage with him. And it's probably the stewardess. So this discouraged the possibility of them sending in faulty equipment on purpose. So because they kept that stewardess in the cockpit, a second stewardess now began to be Cooper's liaison with the pilots. She, he insisted she stay with him during the flight, often commenting accurately on landmarks below. Mm. They're not just commenting on them, but accurately mm-hmm. picking them out. She would later recall he was another, never nasty or cruel, and his whole attitude was respectful but calm. He was more nervous. He just seemed more ready for it to be over and lacked interest in the whole situation. <laughs> I just want my money. Pretty much. So the president of Northwest Orienton Airlines agreed to the ransom and told his employees to comply with Cooper. And Cooper told them through the pilot to have one fuel tank meet them on the uh, on, on the airline. My gosh, words are hard today. Um, had one fuel tank meet them on the airline to bring out the money. He would then release the passengers and then they could bring him the parachutes. So the, uh, the pilot radioed this to the SeaTac Air Traffic Control Tower, who notified the police and FBI. While in a holding pattern, waiting for Cooper's demands to be met, the stewardess asked him, why her airline? Cooper laughed, saying, it's not because I have a grudge against your airline. It's just because I have a grudge. Mm. So the passengers were told they were delayed landing due to mechanical difficulties. One passenger who was bored was even said to have fetched a magazine from behind Cooper's seat <laughs> during the whole <laughs> It's just like, they're all up there. The plane's like clouded with smoke because they're all just chain smoking. <laughs> this dude's like, man, when are we going to land? And the stewardess is like, well, there's some magazines over here. And he's like, goes and grabs a magazine from behind the guy with a bomb and goes Can you and sits down flipping like, his magazine. All the smoke. I mean, oh, my Lord. Just all the smoke, my eyes All water. the smoke and all the tan and orange oh and brown. All the corduroy. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. That's a lot of corduroy, man. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, where am I at now? I lost my. I lost my. We're circling uh, uh, okay, overhead, yeah. and, and the guy got the magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the FBI is taking photos of each twenty-dollar bill on microfilm and collecting the parachutes—two from a diving school and two from a stunt skydiver—in the area. 
So by 5.24 p.m., everything had arrived at the airport. Hmm. Okay. So at 5.46, the pilot lands the plane on a runway away from, away from the main terminal. An employee of Northwest Orient approaches in a fuel truck. He had changed his uniform for civilian clothes in fear of Cooper thinking he was a police officer and deploying the bomb. Mm-hmm. The stewardess met the employee at the front door of the plane and carried the bags to Cooper. As the passengers then disembarked, Cooper was inspecting the cash. The stewardess jokingly asks him if she can have some, and he agrees, handing her a stack of the bills. Hey, now. <laughs> she gives the money back to him, stating it's against company policy to accept gratuity. What? <laughs> what? She had, yes, she handed him a stack of $20 bills. <laughs> I am sorry. <laughs> That is ridiculous. That sounds like a terrible movie. <laughs> I know. This thing is so just like so 70s. It's so 70s. Yeah. She literally told him, she's like, it's against company policy to take gratuity. Oh and she God. had already told him that earlier when he tried to tip him with money from her po- from his pocket. <laughs> what the heck? He's like, broad. I mean, we got, I mean, what do you, what is she? <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> I'm so sorry. I no, lost it's it on great. That. It's no, that's hilarious. No, this is. <laughs> oh my! It's against, oh, it's against policy to take gratuity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She says to the hijacker who's holding her plane hostage. <laughs> Lord, well, I just thought it was funny that she was even willing to joke with him and say, "Hey, can I have some?" <laughs> I know she must have felt pretty comfortable with the guy. Well, I mean, from everything they say, he was super respectful. He was super calm. He was never <laughs> mean to any of them. He was just matter of fact and ready to get it done and over with. You oh know? Oh my goodness. Okay. So, um, the bag of money weighed 19 pounds, and Cooper complained that it was in a cloth sack and not a knapsack like he had requested. <laughs> so, re- when the stewardess retrieved the parachutes and the la- after the last passenger had left, um. Cooper started taking dismantling one of the parachute cases and one of the parachutes to create a better bag to carry the money. The pilot then asked if the stewardess had to stay, and Cooper said, eh, whatever you girls would like to do. <laughs> so both disembarked, but the second would have to return later at Cooper's request. A FAA representative requested to speak to Cooper face-to-face, but he declined. Hmm. Uh, different... There were fuel issues refilling and three different trucks had to be used. Cooper became a little impatient during this time, saying, it shouldn't be taking this long and let's get this show on the road. Wow. So once they've got that all done, Cooper requested they fly to Mexico City with these specifications. He wanted to be flying at 100 knots, which was 115 miles per hour, 10,000 feet altitude with the landing gear deployed, wing flaps at 15 degrees cabin unpressurized the rear or aft door open with the stairs extended he sounds professional i know so the pilot stated that the plane would not be able to fly all the way to mexico with these configurations without a refuel so after discussing it cooper and the pilots agreed to a refuel at reno tahoe international airport okay yeah so northwest orienton headquarters stated the stairs being extended at the rear would not be safe it can be done. Do it, Cooper said. Uh, headquarters protested more. So rather than argue, Cooper said he would do it himself. And this is when he told the he requested the second stewardess be returned. So because he would need her assistance with us. Mm-hmm. So the plane took off again at 7.40 p.m., shortly being followed just out of sight by two F-106 fighters and a Lockheed T-33. Mm. So they stayed out of sight of the airplane. Um, so that Cooper wouldn't see them through the back since he's got it open. So shortly into the flight, Cooper was cutting one of the extra parachutes to hold the money. He told the stewardess to lower the stairs. She was terrified of being sucked from the plane and begged Cooper to not make her do it. So a pilot who was listening on the intercom said, uh, suggested she come up there and get a rope and secure herself with that to one of the seats and then lower the stairs. But Cooper said, no, he didn't want her to go. So she then begged him to secure her to the seat with one of the um, parachutes 
straps. Mm -hmm. And I guess because he saw that she was terrified or whatever, he was just like, whatever, you know what? I'm just going to do it myself. I want you to go up front to the cockpit and close the curtain. Hmm. Okay. Sounds like a magic show. Yeah. So he be she begged him at this point to uh, take the bomb. And he told her he would either disarm the bomb before he left or take it with him. So she saw him swing the parachute onto his shoulders and began to buckle it before she closed the curtain. And, and then um, as she goes to close the curtain, she saw him fastening the money around his waist with that bag he had created. So at 8 p.m., a cockpit, cockpit warning light indicates the stairs at the rear of the plane are being deployed. And a pilot asked on the intercom if Cooper needs assistance. No, he replies. So at 8.13, the tail section of the plane pitched upwards, causing the pilots to have to restabilize the plane. And then as they began their approach to the Reno-Tahoe airport, they started asking Cooper over the intercom to retract the rear stairs for safety so they could land. After several attempts, they realized he wasn't going to answer, so they just went ahead and landed. So at 11.02, flight 305 lands at Reno-Tahoe with the rear door open, the stairs extended. FBI and authorities create a perimeter around the plane. So the pilots, after not getting an answer for a while, one of them just finally is like, you know what, I'm going to look. So he opens the curtain, he goes back there, he can't find Cooper. So they send in the bomb squad. The bomb squad cannot find Cooper or the bomb, and it is cleared. Uh, neither Cooper or the device are on the plane. Hmm. So it's now believed that at 100 knots or 115 miles per hour, 10,000 feet in the air and 15 degree temperatures with rain, pitch black and pitch black night because there was no moon because of the rain. Over 175 mile per hour wind in his face and loafers. K Cooper has parachuted out of a commercial 727 into a thickly for forested portion of Washington state. Oh my gosh. Yep. And let me see where I'm at. If we're going to take our break or... Because I've got a lot of notes on, on old Cooper here. Let me keep going for a little bit. So FBI formed an investigative team after learning about the hijacking when it was circling SeaTac. They created the NORJAC or the Northwest Jacking Team that investigated until 2016 this oh incident. Yeah. Wow. So the $200,000 was equal to a modern day $1.4 million. So during all of this, and when this is all starting to get out, a member of the press confused the alias Dan Cooper because a suspect was questioned and cleared in the uh, Washington area that was named D.B. Cooper. And so when he ran his article about the hijacking, he called him D.B. Cooper. Hmm. And the other press began to use that name. By the time they realized they were mistaken, it was already out there and everybody knew him as D.B. Cooper. <laughs> So Dan Cooper became D.B. Cooper. That's how he became D.B. Cooper. Okay. So the FBI initially did not believe Cooper survived a blind jump with those elements. He left behind 66 fingerprints, cig cigarette butts, two hairs, and his clip-on tie. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So in 12-6 of 1971, J. Edgar Hoover. Here we go. There he is. Approves use of the Air Force SR-71 Blackbird Reconnaissance Airplane to fly the path taken by Flight 305 and capture photos. The area was broad because so many factors were involved in where he would have landed. But despite five passes, the weather made it impossible and the photos were useless. Hmm. So, I mean, everything, you know, would determine on when he jumped, how he jumped, when he pulled his ripcord, that all depended on where he landed. So, so they recreated the event using the same aircraft and pushed a 200 pound sled from the back. The tail lifted upwards during this experiment, telling them that when this happened during the hijacking is probably when Cooper jumped. This would put the landing area somewhere in the south. Uh, in the southernmost outreaches of Mount St. Helens, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin. Now, I'm going to send you a photo because okay. in this photo, I've it's a map. And on this map, <clears throat> um, first one I'm going to send you is the flight path. And the second one I'm sending you is got some, some different, um, some different like... <clears throat> 
<clears throat> points of interest that I've put on there that, that okay. you're going to want to kind of reference here. So you'll see Ariel Washington says mm -hmm. landing zone one and jump zone one is what you're looking at there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, the search focused on the south and north of the Lewis River, and they searched by foot, helicopter, and door-to-door. -door. Boats were searching Lake Merwin, and nothing was found. So Lake Merwin is that, land, that lake right there by landing zone one. Okay. Yeah. And then that river that goes along there, along the blue line, going back towards the big long blue line that's the um basically the the uh lewis river okay all right and ariel is right there in between the two all right so the late spring of 1972 they began two more foot searches and even performed a submarine search of the deeper parts of lake marwin and still nothing was found hmm. okay so initial production projections put the landing zone between Ariel Dam and Battleground, Washington. But in 1972, it was determined that the jump zone was over Law Center, Washington. So that's where you get jump zone two. Okay. Okay. All right. So 2019 report released that a small grocery store was burglarized in Heisen, Washington, three days after the hijacking. And the only thing stolen were survival items like beef jerky and gloves. Uh -huh. And that's on your map there, too. You'll see the burglary. Okay. Yep, I see above it. jump zone one. Okay. A month after the FBI released the serial numbers of the fin two financial, uh, the release the serial numbers of the $20 bills to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conducted large cash transactions. And Northwest Orient offered a recovery award of 15% of the lost cash capping at 25000 Later in 1972, they would release the numbers, the serial numbers for the bills to the public. Hmm. So, of course, what do you know? What do you think is going to happen? Hmm. Two con men counterfeited two of the $2,000 bills to have the serial numbers, convincing a journalist they knew D.B. Cooper the paper paid the men $30,000 only to find out it was all fake. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> what did you expect to happen? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh. So both the Oregon Journal and Post-Intelligencer, which that name, anyway, newspapers offered cash rewards to anyone who turned in any bills that had serial numbers matching the missing ransom money. This lasted until 1974, and no genuine bills were found. Mm. So by 1975, Northwest Orient's insurance paid them $180,000 by order of the Supreme Court. And we'll take a break, and then we'll come back and continue to discuss <laughs> oh D.B. Cooper. All right, and we're back about D.B. Cooper. This is such, <laughs> this is such a fun case. It is funny. One. So um, the original landing zone is now proven inaccurate what? as it's determined that the plane was farther east hmm. than originally believed between this and the winds that night is now believed Cooper to have landed in the Wash Washougal River area. So it's, completely it's on opposite. Yeah, completely opposite of where they thought he was. Yeah, basically. So this area has been searched several times over the years with nothing found, but some think that the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens might have destroyed any evidence. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm sorry. Oh no, it gets it gets better. So now now pull up pull up your map again. I want you to look at Tina's bar. Tina's bar. T-E-N-A. Tina's bar. Alright, hold on. I'm getting there. So, okay, okay. February 10th, 1980, an eight-year-old boy is vacationing at Tina's Bar near Vancouver, Washington. As he digs into the sandy banks to make a fire pit, he comes across three stacks of $20 bills. What? Decayed, but still held together with a rubber band, the serial numbers confirm this is $5,800 of the missing unspent ransom what? money. <laughs> Weekend at Bernie's kind of stuff, man. I'm, I'm telling you. 
So this reawakens the search for Cooper and the bills are examined and it is discovered that they were not buried there, but had washed uh, there after floating down the Columbia River. Hmm. Geological evidence showed that they had not been in the river long and it is and had arrived on the banks after 1974. Now, remember 1971s when the hijacking happened. Mm -hmm. It's believed that they were if they were in the river, they were placed there several months after the hijacking. Okay. Placed there. Placed months. there okay. several months after the hijacking. So after <laughs> this cracked me up too. After several months of protracted negotiations, the boy who found the bills and Northwest Orient's insurance company split the money minus <laughs> fourteen bills held by the FBI. What? <laughs> Finders keepers. Exactly. <laughs> Like, you would be like, no, that's too much, Heather. I mean, like, I'd be like, no, that's ridiculous. This all happened. This oh is all my like, God. So then in 2008, the boy auctioned his bills off for $37,000. That's kid. the equivalent of $50,000 today. Oh, my gosh. If he had just sold, used the currency as it was, it would have only been $2,700. He's smart. He's too smart for that. <laughs> well, he's smart enough that he fought the insurance company on half of it. How old was he? He was eight. That's what I thought you said. What the heck is this kid coming from? <laughs> I don't know, but man, he's got some good lawyers. I, I need to find out. His parents. Are, I don't know. Good gracious. Okay, so look at your map again on the far north. In 1978, a placard was found from a 727 <laughs> with instructions on how to release and extend the rear stairs. <laughs> It was found on a logging road near Castle Rock, Washington. Oh my goodness. Y'all, this is ridiculous. Oh, I do not know why. I'm so laughing at this. It's because it's just ridiculous. It's, ridiculous. it's so ridiculous and funny. Okay, so this now we go into the composite sketch. Oh, God. So composite sketches. <laughs> my phone. Did they get so the, the clip-on tie? The yes, sketch? they do. Oh, they God. actually include the clip-on tie. Oh. So the first composite sketch. Um, Let me find it real quick. There's nothing wrong with clip-on ties if you wear them. It's just, it's just a hilarious part of the story. I'm sorry. Okay, so the first composite sketch is is the top one. And all the eyewitnesses are like, that's not him. That's not what he looks like. They kept telling the FBI, he does not look like that. He's not going to be found if you, when, with you releasing that sketch of him. <laughs> what the heck? He looks like a gangster or something. What? Yeah. So that was the top sketch. Okay. Mm -hmm. The second sketch was composite B. And um, they said, yeah, it's closer, but you made him look too old. <laughs> you made him look too old. Angry and white. <laughs> He's too white. He's too what? old, angry, and white. <laughs> so then they refined it, and the final sketch is there on the bottom. It's com com final sketch composite B was released in 1973. And at that point, all the eyewitnesses said it was very close in resemblance, and you could tell it was him if you saw the sketch. Okay. Okay. Wow. So look at the difference between composite A though, and and that bottom one. <laughs> but there's two old, angry, and white. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so okay, <laughs> yeah. Huh. All right. So FBI released the FBI released a profile in May of nineteen oh nineteen seventy three. Hold on, I gotta grab my phone. She dropped it. Oh, dropping things that happens when you get old. We tuck it in my boobs or something. It was in landing zone one that you dropped it. I'm sorry. Oh, was, it, oh, well, no, was that landing zone one? Okay. <laughs> so military pair. This is the FBI profile they released in 1973. They believe that D.B. Cooper was a military parachutist who exercised regularly because mm -hmm. of his athletic build. Told you, professional. They believed he was a smoker, but not an alcoholic. And they believed him to be intelligent. 
They believe he possibly took his alias from the fictional comic book character Dan Cooper, a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot who took parts of many heroic acts, including parachuting. Hmm. They said that he carefully planned the hijacking, even down to where he sat on the plane. So he sat somewhere where he could see the front of the plane. Nobody could really be behind him. He wasn't except for track. the guy that grabbed the magazine, right? Yeah, except for the guy that grabbed the magazine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> except for the dude was like, I'm bored. <laughs> I need a crossword. Exactly. <laughs> he demanded all his notes returned to him. In fact, he even had like lit used. Your cat is I asking your question. <laughs> so he even had his last cigarette lit by the last match in his matchbook, but instead of throwing it away, he demanded they give it back to him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. He knew what he was doing. He did all that, but then he left his tie. So. Well, I mean, so. <laughs> Obviously, the tie didn't lead them anywhere. <laughs> so they believe that he had knowledge of airplanes, uh, uh, knowledge of airline airplanes as the 727 was the only one you could successfully parachute from. And the CIA had used them during Vietnam to the Vietnam War to drop agents and supplies behind enemy lines. So that's mm. why they believe he's a military parachutist. So uh, of, of the evidence, <laughs> <laughs> of the evidence, only one of the two hairs was viable. This hair was stored until 2002 when they went to get it to search the DNA on it. It was lost lost the only hair they had they lost it oh my god so the cigarette butts okay did they search them they didn't have any prints so they put them in storage at the las vegas fbi field office in 1998 when they went to pull them they discovered they had been destroyed what yep oh my gosh they never matched the prints they were able to pull small amounts of dna off of his tie but they haven't been able to match it to anyone. Mm-hmm. But he had some weird particles on his tie. So he had uh, the tw- the particles he had on his tie were unalloyed al- alum- oh, I'm sorry, unalloyed titanium, hmm. which was really rare in the 70s. It was only used in either aircraft aircraft production or chemical storage. Yeah, he had bismuth. He had antimony. And he had um, serenium and strontanium, which the uh, sulfide, which is Boeing, Boeing supersonic transport development is the only ones that really kind of use those combined together. Um, he had aluminum, which the ti- unalloyed titanium and the aluminum is what they use to co- store con- uh, corrosive chemicals. And then he had, and then he had titanium and antimony alloys. So between the metals and the rare earth elements, they have led to believe that Cooper worked for either Boeing or another aeronautical firm, a chemical manufacturing plant, or a medical metal fabrication and production facility. I'm going to say air, air, aeronautics. Aeronautics, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the rest of the ransom numby, not money has never been spent or located. Oh, really? Really. Maybe he died. So to have survived the jump, someone believes some believe the paper bag he carried had boots, gloves, and goggles on it. So I got a list of suspects. There's like many, many suspects, but I'm just going to read you a couple of them here. Okay. And I'm not sending them, sending you pictures on this. All right, let's see. DB Cooper. Suspects. There it is. All right. So the first one is Ted Braden. All right. Okay. Theodore Burdett Braden Jr. was a special forces commando during Vietnam War, a master skydiver, and a convicted felon. Mm-hmm. He was believed by many within the special forces community, both at the time of the hijacking and in the subsequent years, to have been Cooper. Okay. He was one of the military's leading parachutists, offered, often representing the Army in international skydiving tournaments. Okay. Okay. And let's see here. And they think it's him? They think this is one of the suspects. Okay. He deserted his unit in 1966 in the Vietnam War and made his way to the Congo to serve as a mercenary before being arrested by the CIA and taken back to the United States per court-martial. He was given an honorable discharge but barred from re-enlisting. 
That's a possibility. So, um, someone, one of a fellow, fellow special forces veterans said he was someone with a secret death wish who continually placed him in unnecessary danger, but always seemed to get away with it. Hmm. We're specifically referring to Brayden's disregard for military skydiving safety regulations. Huh. He also con- continuously was involved in shady deals to make money. <laughs> <laughs> This could be the man. This could yeah, be the one. Yeah, this is one. He did have a trucking scam where he uh, allegedly stole $250,000. What? Gosh. But he was never convicted on that. Hmm. The what? perfect co- was described as a perfect combination of high intelligence and criminality. Well, this guy's pretty close. <laughs> but he was shorter at five foot eight inches. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe his loafers were raised. Maybe he Maybe. had platform loafers. He had some platform loafers going. It's the 70s, y'all. So then another strong contestant is going to be Mr. Richard McCoy Jr. He favors the, the sketch oh, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an Army veteran who served two, door, two tours of duty in Vietnam. Um, he was a recreational skydiver with uh, aspirations of becoming a Utah State Trooper. But he's also best known of the so-called cop- copycat hijackings. Uh-oh. He was arrested for attempting a hijacking <clears throat> exactly like the one done by D.B. Cooper. Hmm. He stated he had a bomb in his hand, but it was a paperweight. What? <laughs> he demanded four parachutes and $500,000. Oh my gosh. And he jumped and he survived. Hmm. And he, he looks like him. Mm-hmm. And he looks like him. Could be. Yep, yep. So that is Richard McCoy. Then Vincent C. Peterson is one that is actually being researched by a D.B. Cooper investigator. Like this guy's like a legit D.B. Cooper investigator. Anyway, this particular guy is um, being the researcher Eric Euless, which is the D.B. Cooper investigator. Has listed him as a person of interest because of the three particles that appeared to be very rare. Peterson worked at a company named Rim Crew based in Midland, Pennsylvania. And in Metro Pittsburgh that manufactured titanium and antimony alloys. Hmm. And then we have Sheridan Peterson. One was Peterson. One is Peterson. Okay. Okay. Sheridan Peter's son served in the Marine Corps during World War II and was later employed as a technical editor at Boeing based in Seattle. Interesting. Hmm. He loved to take physical risk and he was a, a skydiver, a smoke jumper. Often teased the media about whether he really was Cooper or not. Hmm. He's... He's insisting, though, he was in Nepal at the time of the hijacking. <laughs> Nepal, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So those are kind of the suspects. There's a whole big old long list of suspects. Oh, my gosh. There's so many people claiming to be him, people who who were, you know, in the area, so on and so forth. Maybe the so, eight-year-old's related to him. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. So on July 12th, 2016, the FBI wrote that they redirected resources allocated to the D.P. Cooper case to focus on other investigative priorities. After 45 years of investigating, we have exhaustively reviewed all credible leads, collected evidence, and interviewed witnesses. Lost the hair, destroyed the cigarette butts. <laughs> This case has resulted in a decades-long manhunt that gained international attention. (laughs) So, in pop culture, Mm -hmm. so, um, his bold and unusual crime has inspired a cult following. Oh, dear God. That has been expressed in song, film, and literature. 
Novelty shops sh- sold t-shirts emblazoned with D.B. Cooper, where are you? <laughs> Restaurant and bowling alleys in the Pacific Northwest hold regular Cooper-themed promotions and sell tourist souvenirs. What? A Cooper Day celebration has been held at the Ariel General, General Store and Tavern each November since 1974. <laughs> so characters, situated, characters and situation inspired by Cooper have appeared in the storylines of the television series Prison Break. Justified, The Blacklist, News Radio, Leverage, Journeyman, Renegade, Numbers, Quincy, M.E., 30 Rock, Drunk History, Breaking Bad, and Loki. That guy. <laughs> as well as the 1981 film The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper and the 2004 film Without a Paddle and a book titled The Vesuvius Prophecy by Greg Cox based on the TV show The 4400. An annual convention known as CooperCon is held every what? year in late November in Seattle, Washington. Oh my god! The event, founded by Cooper researcher Eric Ulis in 2018, is a multi-day gathering of Cooper researchers and enthusiasts. Wow. Originally held in Vancouver, Washington, it has moved to Seattle, Washington. CooperCon took the place of the annual D.B. Cooper Days, which ended when the owner of the Ariel Store Pub died and the pub was forced to close. Hmm. And that is the crazy bananas, cuckoo, fun. D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper. Wow. <laughs> Makes you want, I mean, I, I think I got secondhand smoke from that story. I know. <laughs> I can, well, because I, I grew up, you know, people would smoke We anywhere, all did. Like hospitals, elevators, all that. It didn't matter where you were. And and when when you told me, you know. When you reminded me they were smoking on this airplane, all I could see was a gray haze, man. <laughs> that that nice little, like, the gray haze with the every with now the and then swirls. you see the swirl. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about that, and I'm like, all oh, them people, they didn't need it. They didn't need to light any more cigarettes when they were up there just so They could all get big teen highs from each other. They could just be like. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Oh, my gosh. In between, like, there was just absolutely... Mm. It, <laughs> maybe he wanted the cabin depressurized and the back open to let the the cloud out. <laughs> I don't know, man. That's I don't know. They said that they think he was a pack a day smoker. So, well, you know what? I, I don't know. I don't know if he lived or not. I mean, the money, I think he lived. They would have found so. something. I don't know, man. I guess so, but I mean, he didn't spend any of the money unless he went to another country and exchanged it, or he didn't do it for the money. He it's said possible. he had a grudge. Oh, yeah. I wonder what the grudge was like. Yeah, I don't know. He said he had a grudge. My theory is Wait, he Wait, he had a grudge and the first guy was like all crazy and commando and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the grudge. Well, and also 15 hijackers survived similar jumps as Cooper's with the same conditions. Yeah, so it's possible. So it's very, very possible. Mm. I mean, the 727, and those were all off of the same plane that he jumped from, the 720, Boeing 727. And the little Marine guy, they're, you know, I, they, they would probably do something crazy like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, well, and, you know, even if the heights aren't right, the, uh, the, the shoes make a difference, you know? And, I mean, people are just guessing the heights. Like, the one guy was 6'3", and he's like, yeah, I think it was like 5'10", 5'9". Okay, you know what? You're 6'3". But you could be 6'2", which would put him 5'8". <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, too, when people are scared, like, okay, this guy's got a bomb. He's going to seem bigger. Well, And he was sitting most of the time. From the way the story reads, I'm not sure the passengers were even aware that he had a bomb until after they got off the plane. Because they were told that they were circling due to mechanical difficulties. So there was just this nondescript dude sitting in the back of a smoky airplane. Mm-hmm. With a stewardess, a hot little stewardess, passing notes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sitting in the seat beside him. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's probably why, like I was like, "Look, I'm bored." This is Where's so, the magazine? I mean, it's just so seventies, man. It is so seventies. Oh my gosh, so seventies. The suit, the loafer, the clip-on tie, the passing of the notes. We can't accept gratuity or passenger. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> but you know what? I understand. She was she was kind of freaked out. Like if people do weird things and they're scared. So I had a thought on it too, and I, I wanted to see what you thought about it. 
So what if it was the stewardess and D.B. Cooper just really wasn't a thing? I guess probably not because the pilots no. talked to him. No, because they talked to him and she was like up there with the pilots whenever he was sucked out of the back of the airplane. <laughs> when he jumped out of the yeah. back of the airplane. Well, and the, one of the big things are like, well, he couldn't have stirred. Uh, he could not have steered the parachute. He could not have steered the parachute. But he also cut strips out of one of the parachutes he didn't use. And he could have used those as a way to form him some kind of way to steer those parachutes. Yeah, I have no idea. The, the man was a professional. When he yeah, started he talking he... about this high, this fast, stares out, I'm like, yeah, this guy knows what he's doing. Yeah, the wing flaps at this degree. Yeah, he knew he knew what he was doing. Yeah. So. And, and of course, you know, like we were saying, they didn't have the autopilot, which is the word I was looking for that I couldn't think of. They didn't have the autopilot, so they're all having to go off of their own way of, um, like, there's no pinpoint accuracy like you would have with an autopilot as yeah. far as like you know they're actually having to use maps there's no like electric not as much of an electric guidance system kind of thing i mean mm -hmm. this is the 70s so no telling where that plane was when he freaking jumped out i mean they eventually made it to to, to reno but well i mean if it was if he just had a beef with something you know and he just wanted to prove a point he probably buried that money all up and down that riverbank. That eight-year-old needs to get back out there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think they, they actually dredged it, if I remembered correctly. Um, so uh, they they probably had plenty of chance to look at it and see where that money is. But, I mean, to me, it sounds like he just threw it all in the river. And then no telling where it ended up. He sent him on a wild goose chase that lasted how long? Good gracious. 45 years. He's like, as of 2016, it was 45 I mean, years. But look, wanna, this is 2023 and we're still talking about him. If you want to flip the bird to the FBI and stuff, that I mean, that would be annoying. He literally, literally did this and, and somehow got away with it to the point that there was no body. There no hair, no, man. <laughs> there was no the evidence of where he, where he landed. Like they couldn't see any like. They could not find a, a, a distinctive area where he could have landed. They couldn't. They never found the parachutes. They never found anything. And Mount St. Helens and erupted. They did, yeah. Melted what was left. Exactly. They Mount lost St. his hair. They destroyed his cigarette butts. I mean, like, really? They I had just, his tie with some weird stuff on it. And that was it's it. got a mother of pearl uh, uh, setting. So it's just like a little circle of mother of pearl. It's just a straight bar. So it's like the old fashioned ones where you, you know you have the straight bar pin with the little chain that goes around and hooks He probably just the, stole it off a and, mannequin at JCPenney's. Yeah, I mean, no telling. I mean, and they weren't even sure if his suit was black or or uh, brown. They it was probably tell. brown. It's the 70s, y'all. Everything was brown. True. True enough. True enough. Except for his raincoat was black, they said. Wait, was his shirt yellow? His shirt was actually white. White. Okay. I mean, it might have been tinged a little from the tobacco smoke. I'm just saying. Yeah. Everything. I think all of our eyeballs were tinged. That whole from banana the, yellow thing with brown suits was a thing back then. Yeah. But they were like, there's no way he, he survived in loafers. He would have broke his ankles. And then, like, they had all these other hijackers are like, bet. <laughs> but he actually, because of this, they have this thing now on the back, on the back or the aft, the rear of the airplanes that locks into place so that those back hatches cannot be opened mid-flight now all because of db cooper it's literally called a cooper it's called a cooper something uh cooper, cooper keeper <laughs> cooper keeper it's a cooper keeper cooper keeper i think it's actually called a a a, a line or a lane or some or vein or something like that but mm -hmm. it literally just swings into place and holds that hatch closed now and it's literally named after him you ain't going nowhere and then mm -hmm. he's also the he starting this and then all these subsequent hijackings is actually the reason why you have your baggage checked now uh when you go through the airport where they look through the look on the scanner on your baggage he's, why, the, reason he, for that? he's the reason why you do the metal detector when you go into the not 9 11 this was all before 9 11 well, think about true. it before 9 11 yeah, you true. still had to you have your baggage scanned mm -hmm. you still had to go through it a metal wasn't detector as rigorous no yeah, I remember that. Yep, you still had to do all that. He's the reason why all that started. I think nine eleven was what took uh, families out of the nine um, elevens when you holding could, areas and stuff where you yeah. wait for your 
plane. Exactly. You couldn't you couldn't meet them. You couldn't meet the plane anymore. And then also, uh, you couldn't take stuff like tweezers or because I remember liquids and a friend stuff of mine, like that. Um, joined the navy and we went to see him off at the airport and we were watching his plane coming and all that and so, then 9 11 happened you can't do that so we used to do that we used to go when my oldest brother would go to college or like when we went to disney with make a wish with my little brother we would we uh family would go and you would sit with your family member yeah. and watch them get on the plane and then watch their plane take off and you can't do that anymore yeah see i hated that because at one point you know i dropped my kids off at the airport and you can't do that so it's like there they go <laughs> exactly i felt that <laughs> text same me, way text me text me text me 30 times text so <laughs> i i was really funny i was i went to pick up my oldest uh from an airport after a vacation and i got in the back of the line and i'm sitting there creeping up watching them on the on the life 360 app walking through the airport and i'm like okay now come to this door nope nope they made me move forward now come to this door <laughs> Oh um, no, we're fixing to run out of parking. You better run. Knees to chest. <laughs> one of my kids, they had never been on airplanes. Yes, I know that's crazy. She had never been well, on airplanes. Their, their first she time. Went, she went, she was going to a certain place, right? Well, her plane laid over in, is it the largest airport, Denver or something? Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, my kid is in the, <laughs> one of the largest airports that she's never been there and i'm just thinking okay just text me let me know where you are what you're doing i felt so helpless i'm like oh my god <laughs> see and then you know that's why i was like how do how do i tell them how to get through the airport <laughs> like you know because my brain works differently than their brains with my ocd and their autism and it's just like oh my goodness okay so. you look up at that digital thing and then you read it and it yeah. changes all the time. Things change, <laughs> all and that's scary. I know, but you, but it'll be okay. <laughs> but yeah, no. So this D D B Cooper or Dan Cooper, that's crazy. Alias Dan Cooper, because obviously there was no Dan Cooper. I wonder if he's like just walking around free, thinking I'm Dan Cooper, and ain't nobody gonna know. Well, and like I said, there's been lots of people who there's been deathbed confessions. Hey, I'm Dan Cooper. There or DB Cooper. More than one. There's been several. What? There's been <laughs> several. What the heck? People are obsessed with this. You're not DB Cooper if you didn't jump out of the airport. Three people have confessed on deathbeds that they were DB uh, Cooper that I read in all of this. That's crazy. Uh, two of them believed it was a relative of theirs that was DB Cooper because of XYZ, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, several military men so yeah but that's it craziness funness <laughs> all right well i'm heather i'm jay and this is the trauma tally bye bye